the past few weeks, we've been taking a look at the five solas that were established after the Protestant Reformation in, in 1517. And these solas are not something that was invented in the 16th century, but are foundational beliefs that are, are clearly found in the New Testament. And I hope you've seen that as we have been studying the scriptures together. And the, I failed to mention this, and I thought maybe I, maybe I should. The word sola is Latin. It's a Latin word, and it means alone. That's where we get the, the five solas. That's why all the, the solas have the word alone on them. And the, the five solas are scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and to God be the glory alone. So far we've, we've looked at three. Today we'll look at our fourth one. And as I mentioned last week, all of these, these solas are connected to each other, and you cannot have one without the others. And today we will see how connected grace alone is to the, the other five solas. So if you would stand with me, please, we are going to read this morning from Luke chapter 18 out of respect for God's word this afternoon. We will read this afternoon from Luke chapter 18. We'll read from verse 9 to verse 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Please pray with me. Father, we do pray that you would humble us this afternoon. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to receive your word that has been inspired. We pray that you would help, that you would allow the Holy Spirit to, to help us to understand your word today that he would teach us and Lord, that he would convict us and that he would also comfort us where we need to be comforted lord we do ask please give us ears to hear and eyes to see and minds and hearts to understand today for your glory lord we ask in jesus name amen please be seated In January 1977, Gary Gilmore was executed in Texas. He was imprisoned for two armed robberies in the state of Utah where he, he shot and he killed the people that he was robbing. And what was different about his case and what got the attention of the media was his refusal to appeal and as a result, 
he was executed six months later. But the other thing that captured the attention of the media and of America at that time was that Gary Gilmore, he was killed by a firing squad. Utah and Oklahoma were the only two states that allowed execution by a firing squad. And in this case, Gary Gilmore requested that he be allowed to die that way. And there was a reason for this. You see, Gary Gilmore's mother was a member of the Church of the, the Latter-day Saints. That is, she was a, a Mormon. And that had a profound effect on the way Gary would choose to die. So Gary Gilmore's decision to die by a firing squad was because he wanted to, to spill his blood on Mormon soil as an apology to God. The Mormon church taught a doctrine called blood atonement. And their leaders taught that certain sins were beyond the atoning power of the blood of Christ. And because he believed this, he wanted to try and atone for his own sins by spilling his blood on Mormon soil to try and earn favor with God. And we know that the Bible doesn't teach this, but there are still those who believe in some form of atonement that they think they can make in order to earn favor with God. And that brings us to sola gratia, by grace alone. We as evangelical Protestants believe that the scriptures teach that our salvation comes completely by the grace of God, and that it is not dependent on anything that, that we do, anything that we can add to it, other than faith and acceptance in God's grace. We read this morning Ephesians chapter 2, but verse 8 and 9 shows us clearly that we are saved by God's grace when we believe in the completed work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. And no one can take credit for that. No one can take credit for, for this salvation because it has been achieved by Jesus Christ and, and not by us. It is a gift from God, as Ephesians tells us. Salvation is not a reward for the things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Remember a couple of weeks ago I shared this quote, this definition from J.R. Packer about the, the grace of God, and I think it's worth repeating. Um, J.R. Packer says, The grace of God is love freely shown toward guilty sinners, contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance to their demerit. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. And this week, as I was thinking of a way to present this, this teaching on grace alone, I thought I would do so by way of, of illustration. And that's why I selected this parable of Jesus, of the Pharisee and the, the tax collector. Because here in this parable, we see God's grace is love freely shown toward the, the guilty tax collector, contrary to his merit, and actually in contrast to his demerit. It is God showing goodness to him who deserved only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. And while Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem where 
he would soon be crucified, he continued teaching his disciples and even the Pharisees many important truths. Jesus had taught his disciples to pray with perseverance for, for the arrival and the consummation of the, the kingdom of God. And then he taught them about the requirement for entrance into God's kingdom. And this is where we are in Luke chapter 18. On the surface, this parable, this story, does have to do with prayer. The two characters of the parable are praying, as we will see. But in reality, this the story is about what we think makes us acceptable in God's sight. The two prayers of the two men in this parable represent two different views, two contrasting views of, of how people approach God. One on the basis of supposed good works and the other on the basis of God's grace. The title of my sermon this morning is Solo Gratia, Amazing Grace. And my first point we see in verse 10. We will look at two men. Look at your Bibles in verse 10. Verse 10 says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. As I said, there are two different people here with contrasting views. And you could not have come up with two people who were more different than, than each other, more different than society viewed them as well. See, the Pharisee, to his society, he, uh, to, to his society, he, he represents the, the good guy, while, while the tax collector is, is the bad guy. He is, he is the height of wickedness in this particular society. And the first character that we're introduced to in the beginning of verse 18 is a Pharisee. In the first part, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee. Let's talk a little bit about this Pharisee. In Jesus' day, the temple consisted of the sanctuary as well as the, the outer courts. And people went to the, the temple to, to offer sacrifices. They went to, to listen to teaching. And they also went to, to fellowship and they went to, they went to pray. So it was, it was normal, it wasn't uncommon for a Pharisee to go to the temple in order to pray. It is not clear whether or not he went there during the regular hours of prayer, but, but it really didn't matter. People expected to see a Pharisee at the temple praying. It was a common thing. Since the, the Pharisees, they were, they were considered to be pious, they were considered to be religious leaders and, and very religious in their own, in their own capacity. And the Pharisees were, in that time, they were well respected and they were honored members of the community. And there was no doubt in anyone's mind that the Pharisee in the story is the good guy and the, the tax collector is the, the bad guy. And this is fascinating how the Lord uses this contrasting picture of these two men, even how this tax collector now, as we see in the second part of verse 10, is going to pray as well. Two very different people going to the temple to pray. The tax collector, he was, he was normally a, a Jewish person who was hired by the Roman government to collect taxes from the Jews. The Jews hated these types of tax collectors who felt that they were being extortioned and, and being robbed. These tax, the tax collectors many times were, were corrupt 
And they were considered among the lowest in society. The Jews despised these tax collectors. Tax collectors were the, the scum of, of Jewish society. He was the, the money-grabbing, cheating Roman collaborator in, in the eyes of the Jews at that point. Perhaps in today's culture, the closest social equivalent would be a, would be a drug dealer or a, or a pimp. People would, would literally cross to the other side of the street when, when they saw tax collectors approaching them. So when Jesus said that the other man who went to pray was a, was a tax collector, his audience would have been very confused, would have been very puzzled why he brought in this tax collector next to this Pharisee. Of course, they understood that a, a Pharisee would go to the temple to pray. He was a religious person after all, and, and one would expect him to be praying at the temple. But a tax collector? That was, that was very unusual. And why would an irreligious tax collector go to the temple to pray in the first place? Surely God had no use for somebody like that. Surely God had no regard for somebody as wicked as a tax collector. But we see two prayers as well. Not just two people. We see two prayers that are made. That's my second point we see in verse 11 to verse 13. And notice the two aspects of the Pharisee's prayer in verse 11. First, we see his posture in the first part of 11. Jesus says in verse 11, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. So we see the, the, the Pharisee, he's, he's standing. He has his hands lifted up to heaven. He has his eyes lifted up to heaven. And this wasn't an unusual posture for uh, people to pray. In the case of the Pharisee, we would we wouldn't even expect this of him. We are not told where in the, the temple complex the Pharisee stood. It is probably likely that he was standing as close as possible to the, the Holy of Holies where, where God's unique presence dwelt. The New King James Version translates um, this verse, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. And I think that translation better represents what was going on here with the Pharisee. See, the Pharisee was, was outwardly addressing God, but really he was talking out loud so that people around him could hear what he was saying. So here's this Pharisee praying. But look at his petition. We've seen his posture, but look at his petition, the second part of verse 11. The scriptures say, God, I thank you, that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Look at verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So here we see the content of the, the Pharisee's prayer. And it really does reveal to us a lot about his heart. It reveals a lot about his heart. He felt that he was on a completely different level than the really bad people. He knew that he was not perfect, but he, he certainly wasn't that bad, certainly not as, as bad as the, the tax collector. It's important to note that the, the Pharisee does not confess his sins to God. Nowhere in his prayer does he ask God to forgive him for what he has done to violate God's holy law. If he had any sense at all of God's presence in his life, he 
would have known that he was a sinner, that he was approaching a holy God close to the holy of holies. But the Pharisee says in verse 11, God, I, I thank you that I'm not like the other men. And then he goes on to describe the kinds of other men that he was not like. He was not an extortioner like the other men. He was not unjust like the other men. He was not an adulterer like the other men. Or even like this, this tax collector. And the Pharisee compared himself with other people. He was, he was comfortable to compare himself with other people. But notice something here. He did not compare himself with God. He did not compare himself with the holy God. He did not compare himself even with other godly people. He compared himself with, with unjust people. He did not compare himself with God's perfect standard. And that reveals a lot about his heart. Instead, he compares himself with people who were known to be sinful, such as extortioners, such as unjust adulterers, such as tax collectors. And the Pharisee then commended his, his work to God. He says in verse 12, look there, he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And actually the Pharisees' good works were, were so good that they were even better than, than God's law. God's law in the Old Testament suggested fasting only one day a year on the Day of Atonement. We see that in Leviticus chapter 16. However, this Pharisee, he fasted twice a week. Twice a week, probably on, on Mondays and Thursdays. And when it came to tithing, he gave way more than the law required. He tithed on everything. One commentator summarizes this Pharisee's prayer. He says, in effect, this Pharisee's prayer is, I thank you, God, that I am such a great guy. Pride permeates the intercession. We see his heart revealed here in the words of his prayer. Full of pride, don't we? Full of pride, no humility here at all. And the Pharisee's approach, he, he approaches God with his own righteousness. He tries to establish what a great guy he is. He approaches God with his own good works. He approaches God with his own good deeds. And he believes that, that God will accept him because of his own righteousness. And sadly, he looked down on, on others who were, who were not as, as righteous and upstanding as he was. And that is why Luke says in verse 9 that, that Jesus also told this parable to some who, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and, and treated others with contempt. That's exactly what the Pharisee is doing. Treating others with contempt. Trusting in himself. And one of the great issues of the Reformation, one of the great issues of the, the Reformers, was to show their congregations that we are no different to the Pharisee. We want to contribute something to our own salvation. We want to try and establish our own righteousness. We want people to see how, how good we are. We want to contribute our own good works, our own good deeds to God so that, so that He will accept us into His kingdom. And we still do that today. We say things like, I'm a good person. I, I give my tithes to church. I, I go to church. I go to church at 3 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Who does that? 
I may not be perfect, but I'm better than those other people. I'm better than some. And all of these answers and answers like these are, are based on works righteousness. And like the Pharisee, we are presenting our own good deeds to, to God or comparing ourselves favorably to others as the basis of God's acceptance for us. But, but it will not work. It will not work. We see in verse 13 a different type of prayer, a different type of attitude. We see a different heart revealed here in the prayer of the tax collector. I want you to see two aspects of this tax collector's prayer. Look at verse 13. We see his posture. Jesus says in verse 13, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying. So the tax collector must have been somewhere in the, in the temple complex, but, but it tells us that he was standing afar off. He wasn't close to the Holy of Holies or anywhere close to where, where the priest was. He knew that, that God's special presence was, was in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and he, he desperately wanted to, to connect with God. And that is why he's there. That's why he's, he's standing afar off. But like the Pharisee, he was also standing, but he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He was so ashamed of his sins that he stood afar off and he stood with his eyes downcast. And he's beating his breast. He's beating his chest in, in self-accusation, in despair. And his guilt for his, his sin, he knew, was overwhelming. He was not there to see and to be seen. He was there to pour out his, his heart to God. Look at his petition in the next part of verse 13. He says, he prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector's prayer has the distinction of being one of the shortest prayers in the New Testament. Seven words in, in English and six words in the, in the Greek. He addresses God in this prayer, same as the, the tax collector, but he does not compare himself to anyone else. Instead, he, he begs God for mercy. He makes no excuses. He makes no promises to do something good to earn God's favor. He understands that God does not forgive excuses, but God forgives sins. He understood that. He has no interest in comparing himself with anyone or, or anything, else, anything else apart from God. He knew that he was a sinner guilty of God's wrath and God's judgment. He knew that he stood condemned for all of his sins before the judgment seat of God. He did not ask for justice. He knew if he asked for justice... He would be destroyed. Instead, he begs God for mercy. We see the Pharisee standing in, in a place of prominence. We see the tax collector standing at a, at a distance. We see the, the Pharisee stood with his, with his head erect, looking up into heaven, his eyes towards heaven. We see the tax collector. He could not even bring himself to, to lift his head. The Pharisee prayed with, with confidence and no doubt, left feeling very self-satisfied with himself. But the tax collector, he sorrowed over his sin and he, and he pled with God for mercy. And the Pharisee left feeling good, but unjustified. 
because he was still under God's wrath. He went home proud, self-righteous, and condemned. I think the Reformation helped people to understand that each of us is condemned without Christ. That we are sinners in need of a Savior. The Bible tells us correctly in Romans 3, chapter 10, that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have sinned. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We looked at that verse last week. We looked at Romans 3 as well. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The only way a person is saved is by the unmerited grace of God. God, by His grace alone, saves sinners. Like the tax collector, every sinner must cry to God for mercy so that he might be saved by the grace of God alone, not by his own works. But I want you to notice something here about his, his plea for, for mercy. His plea for mercy was based on what God has done. When he says in verse 13, God be merciful to me, a sinner. The word merciful is the verb. It's a verb form of the word used for the mercy seat. And it could literally be translated, be propitiated for me or be mercy seated for me. And it means to, to treat me as one who comes on the basis of the blood shed on the mercy seat as an offering for, for sins. And you know, the mercy seat was, was a part of the, the Ark of the Covenant that was there in the Holy of Holies in the temple. It was there the way the, the priests went to, to offer the, the blood. And it was seen as a, a symbol of the presence of God among His people. It was the place where the, the sacrificial blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. And His plea for mercy was based on this atonement. His plea for mercy was based on what God had done, not on His good works, but on what God had done. Gary Gilmore, who I mentioned earlier on, who was sentenced to death and refused to appeal his sentence, and as a result he was killed by a firing squad six months later, he did not plea for mercy based on the atonement of Christ. He did not plea for mercy based on on God's atonement, based on anybody else's atonement. He believed that his own spilled blood would be accepted by God. He believed his own blood atonement was sufficient, was enough for him to earn favor with God. And the tax collector, the tax collector of all people, got it right. He sorrowed over his sin. And he pled with God for mercy based on what God has done. And look at the results. The Lord concludes the parable in verse 14 with two results we see in my last point. Jesus says in verse 14, look at in your Bible, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. We see the tax collector, he is received and he is exalted the word for justified is a, is a legal term it means to be declared not guilty and jesus pronounced the the tax collector not guilty 
Why? How could he pronounce him not guilty? Well, because God transferred that penalty for his sin to his son. Jesus became his substitute. Jesus paid the penalty. And so God's justice was satisfied. And he was able to extend grace to the, to the tax collector. As bad as he was, as bad as people thought he was. All of his sins were taken away by the blood of Christ. All of his transgressions were removed, as the scriptures say, as far as the east is from the west. And he was adopted into the family of God. But we see the result of the, the Pharisees' prayer. Look at verse 14. Rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee is rejected and he is excluded by God. The tax collector is received and he is exalted by God. One commentator says the Pharisee goes home, but he has nothing. He might as well have stayed home that day and never gone to the temple. In fact, this might have even been better for him. He has nothing. And Jesus taught that good works or works righteousness do not gain a single person's acceptance with God. No matter how religious that person thinks he is. No matter how many of the laws he keeps. The only way a person gains acceptance with God is by God's mercy. Acceptance with God is gained by acknowledging our sins and trusting in God's provision of payment for that sin. In the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God's grace alone saves sinners. Just this week, I visited a, a friend of Adele's in, in hospital, a lady who's got a few weeks to live, dying with cancer. And the first question she asked me when I met with her is, Gareth, where am I going when I die? And the first question I asked her is, have you put your, your faith in the work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? The first question I asked her. Because I understand that grace alone saves sinners. She kept on telling me how, how she's offended so many people and how bad she is and, and how she has bad relationships with her, with her children and, and family members. And how will God ever forgive her? How can she ever do good works enough for God to receive her? And I asked her the same question. Is your faith in Christ alone? Or is your faith in your works? God's grace saves sinners, folks. Martin Luther, in his book, The Bondage of the World, if you ever come across that, I would highly recommend it, The Bondage of the World. He, he says in his book, God has surely promised his grace to the humbled. That is to those who mourn over and despair of themselves. But a man cannot be thoroughly humbled till he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, beyond his own counsels, beyond his own efforts, beyond his own will and works, and depends absolutely on the will, the counsel, the pleasure, and the work of another, God alone. God alone. It's important that we understand this word, alone. 
This line of difference between the Roman Catholic Church and Protestants today lies in a single word, and that is the word alone, the word sola. The Catholic Church, they, they taught that we are saved by grace, but the Reformers insisted that there was an error in that statement. The Reformers, they maintained that the sinner is saved by the grace of God, his unmerited favor alone, alone. The Roman Catholic Church did not teach that. And many false religions still teach that we are saved, sure, by God, but also by our works. And that's the distinction that the Reformers made. We are saved by God's grace alone. We cannot bring anything to the table. As we have seen from the scriptures today, only those who have given up all self-reliance and have humbled themselves and cried out to God for mercy will be saved. Salvation by grace alone means that from first to last, it is undeserved. We haven't earned it. We haven't got a medal for being good, folks. It is undeserved. Jesus is the author, and he is the finisher of our faith. Grace is not God doing 95% or even 99% of the work with us making up the difference. Grace is God doing 100%. And our humble acceptance of, of God's work, recognizing that, that we are unworthy and we have nothing to contribute no one can ever stand before God and say, look at me. Look what I've done. God is no one's debtor. God is no one's debtor. We are saved by the grace of God alone. Now I'm sure there are some who will argue that this doctrine will, will give a people a license to, to sin and embrace a lifestyle of, of moral recklessness. The Apostle Paul anticipated the same question. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? So that grace may increase? And then he answers the question in verse 2, By no means! We who have died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? What Paul is basically saying here is that if you think that the grace of God gives you a license to sin, then you don't know what the grace of God means, or you have never experienced the grace of God. Knowing and understanding God's tremendous gift of salvation accomplishes the opposite of giving a license to sin. How could anyone, knowing the price that Jesus paid for us, go on to live a life of sin. How is that possible? How could anyone who understands God's unconditional and guaranteed love for those who believe take that, that love and, and throw it back in God's face? How is that possible? Questions like this, and people who, who think like this demonstrate that they don't understand God's grace. Thinking that they can do what they want. They have a, a ticket to heaven. And they can live like they want. 
They're demonstrating that they, they don't truly understand what God's grace means. They demonstrate that they've not truly experienced salvation through Christ alone. They're very much like this Pharisee, bringing their own good works to the table. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. That's the word of the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. He says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. For the genuine believer here this morning, continuing to live sinfully is not an option for us. Because our conversion resulted in a completely new nature. We have been given a new life. Our desire is to no longer live in sin. The grace of God in the gospel leads us to pursue lives of, of holiness. To pursue lives of purity. That doesn't mean we, we never fail. That doesn't mean that we never fall short. That doesn't mean that we never sin. But it means we have a direction. We have a direction that we are pursuing. And instead of, of wallowing in our sin as we, as we once did, like the, like the pig enjoys the mud, instead of wallowing in it as we once did, we now hate our sin. And we want to be delivered from it. The idea of taking advantage of, of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf by continuing to live sinfully is, is unthinkable. Is unthinkable. Professing Christians who have no desire to, to live for Christ, but instead find themselves living lives that are no different from unbelievers, they should examine whether they have genuinely accepted Christ alone as their Savior. Paul tells the Corinthian church, and he tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, this exact thing. He says, Examine yourselves. To see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Isaac Watts captures this truth well when he, when he wrote in his hymn, When I Survey the, the Wondrous Cross. Here's one of his choruses. He says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Someone who understands God's amazing grace can write words like that. When we've been transformed and received God's amazing grace, we want to live for him like he died for us. We are humbled by his grace. We are thankful for his grace. We know we don't deserve it, but we are thankful. And in response, we live lives for his glory. We live lives reflecting our magnificent Savior to the world around us. And I pray that you'll be encouraged this week as you live lives for his glory based on sola gratia, on Christ alone. Pray with me. Father, we... Thank you for your word today. Thank you for the example, Lord, that you have given to us of these two men in the scriptures. Very different backgrounds, very different 
socially, but we see how their hearts, Lord, revealed exactly where they were, both in need of a Savior, both in desperate need of forgiveness of their sins. Lord, I have no doubt there are people in this room who need forgiveness of their sins. And I have no doubt that one of these characters they can identify with. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to examine our hearts today. I pray the Spirit of God would, would search our hearts and he would show us which of these characters we are. Are we humbled by your grace? Are we calling out to you for mercy? Are we trusting your mercy? Well, Lord, in our pride and in our arrogance, are we trusting in our works? Are we trusting in our efforts? And Lord, show us today our need for Christ alone, for his grace alone. Show us our need today, Lord, to be saved from our sins by your son, Jesus Christ, who came to shed, to give his life as a ransom for our sins. And save the lost today, they need to be saved, Lord. I ask for your glory and for our joy, in Jesus' name.